0: Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Disclosure Podcast. I am your host, Ed, and I thought on this particular episode, on the second episode, we could discuss communication because veganism and animal rights, um, there's so many different topics to discuss and we will get through all those different topics and we'll discuss so many different themes, but at the same time I think it's so important that we look at how we basically communicate about veganism and how we discuss veganism to non-vegans and when I started my YouTube channel, which was three years ago now, one of the th- first things I started doing was having these discussions with people. I, actually, one of the first things I ever did on my on my uh, YouTube channel was I created a, a video series called 30 Days, 30 Excuses. And I recently remade that. Well, I say recently, but it was January 2018 that I remade that. So just over a year ago. But one of the first things I did was that was that video series looking at different excuses. Um, which was really, I found it really beneficial because I learned so much. And I'll discuss this a bit more throughout the podcast. But I think one of the reasons I did that video series was, was because, you know, after not being, well, being vegan for a little while, not too long, but and really only started touching upon, you know, so many of the issues of veganism. And I'd only really started touching upon what it was like to kind of discuss veganism, even just online, really. It was it was all such new territory for me, and I feel like there's so many different excuses that you get bombarded with. You know, we've all we've you know, for the vegans out there, we've all kind of, um, you know, we've all really felt what it's like to be bombarded with all these excuses. And so I kind of at the beginning challenged myself. It, it was kind of a challenge to myself, well, in many ways, the challenge of uploading a video every day, but really the challenge of of, of learning kind of how to respond or, or learning kind of counter arguments to many of the excuses that we hear. And so I decided I did this, this video series, 30 Days thirty Excuses, and we would kind of go through, you know, in each day a different, a different excuse. Um, and I really enjoyed that, and that was great. And, and by the end of it, I felt like I'd learned a lot more about how to respond to, to the different excuses. And then kind of after that, I think it was probably like the month after maybe, I started going out on the streets and having conversations with people. And that was a whole different scenario, and i i think i kind of kind of quickly realized that it wasn't just about knowing the information that was important but it was also about how to communicate that information that was really important um and that kind of really embarked me on another journey of kind of learning and educating myself and i realized it's not just about having these different arguments kind of the responses to them but how you kind of put those arguments across to people and how you discuss those things with with people is actually potentially in some situations, even more important than actually what you say, sometimes how you say something has more kind of body and has more value than sometimes what you say. I mean, of course, you know, you need the balance of both. But, you know, if you say something that's actually quite pertinent and, and actually has a lot of meaning and, and is a really good response, but you say it in a terrible way or you deliver what you're saying just really badly, then actually it, it's not necessarily going to carry the full weight of, of what it is that you're you're, you're wanting it to carry um, if you don't deliver it in an appropriate way. So I kind of went on this process of learning how to communicate effectively. And a lot of that actually at the beginning was through a process of trial and error, without even realizing it, I think. and um, Actually, th- th- there is a moment um, that I think is worth discussing. And so th- the first time I did those street interviews, um, the, the actual conversation itself was, was very pleasant. It was with a couple of American tourists and they were receptive and really happy. And it was all just kind of like, you know, it it was, it was a nice conversation. Um, and, um, I enjoyed it and came out of it feeling like I'd done, you know, quite a good job. Um, but as I did the next kind of video, it wasn't the same as that. And I can't really place why it was di well, I know why it was different. And I think what I mean to say is I can't really place why I was different in those conversations. I think in the first ones I did, because I was nervous, um, I was I was very nervous. I'd never done it before and I was kind of put myself in a situation that was quite, you know, anxiety provoking in many ways because How often is it you go out on the streets and stop someone to have a conversation with them about something they probably disagree with you with, and you'll have to argue your point and hopefully do it well? Very, very rarely. And I've probably never done that in my life before. So it's not an understatement to say that I was very nervous. And I think because I was nervous, I probably went in with kind of like a much more timid approach. I think timid is probably quite a good word. I went in and just kind of like tested the waters a little bit and, you know, and didn't want to ruffle any um, feathers. I mean, I think that that's I think that can be a vegan saying, ruffle feathers, it doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. It could just be giving a, a chicken a, a stroke. So ruffle some feathers. Um and so I, I was quite timid. And uh, I think that really kind of helped with the conversation, kind of reflecting on it now. But when I did some of the next interviews, I don't think that I was quite as timid. And that's not to say that I wasn't nervous, because I've always been nervous talking to going out and starting these interviews, because you never know what's going to happen. You never know who you're going to have a conversation with, how it's going to lead, how they're going to react. So I think that kind of nervousness is is completely understandable. Um, and again, we'll, we'll discuss that kind of thing later. But I think the second kind of interviews that I put up, and they're on my channel still, and i um, were different and i left the conversations not feeling anywhere near as happy with myself and this was what kind of caused that process of like having to teach myself about communication i think or at least a trial and error basis of what i felt worked more effectively and i do want to say a little disclaimer here at the beginning um that the things i'm going to talk about and what i'm going to say like i really respond well to these things And it doesn't mean that everyone will respond well to this form of communication or these kind of, you know, techniques of communication. I'm not saying that this is a one size fits all scenario because it certainly isn't. And I guess the thing is, we need different strokes for different folks. You know, like people require different things. It's not a one size fits all. And so this is what I found. Well, what I will discuss is kind of what I found to be like the most effective for me and also what I enjoy. But that doesn't mean it's the only way to communicate with people. It doesn't mean it's the only way to help people understand veganism or anything like that. And I really don't want to kind of give off the impression that that is what I'm saying because I'm not. So a little disclaimer at the beginning. What I'm going to talk about in the podcast is is what's been good for me and, and what I've enjoyed and what I found to be effective in my conversations. And and I know others have felt the same way. Um, but by no means is it the only way of communicating veganism. I think that's important to say. All right. So let's go back. So Um, I'd done the first kind of interviews and I was happy with how they went. I was a bit timid and didn't want to put my foot out too far. So I kind of was timid in that sense. But the second ones, I think I went in with a little bit more of a, um, what would the word be? I mean, the word could be arrogant. The word could be audacious. I don't know. I went in with a little bit more, uh, pizzazz. Is that kind of a more neutral way of saying it? A bit more of a pizzazz, so to speak. I wasn't quite as worried about upsetting someone. I wasn't quite as timid. I felt okay, I can do this. I've got this like it's fine. So and the conversations themselves are a little bit less agreeable. And that's not to say that all the conversations we have to have with non-vegans have to be agreeable. I mean, the kind of notion of having a conversation with two opposing views means they will always be slightly disagreeable in a sense, but you know, you can be you can be agreeable and and, and disagree in a kind of a weird paradoxical way, I suppose, but um I think I went in with the intention of being in a way that probably wasn't as effective. Okay, I'm kind of being around the bush. Let's get to it. So I had a conversation with two South African guys. This is what I'm alluding to. And in that conversation, it's a little bit heated. Um I'm a little bit kind of with the microphone I'm probably a little bit aggressive. So body language is key. We'll talk about this. Microphone's probably a little bit aggressive. My body language is a bit aggressive. My tone of voice is a bit aggressive. What I say is probably a little bit aggressive. And we kind of get to the point where we're talking about humane slaughter and I say to the the two like you know what is a humane way of taking the life of an animal something like that and they say oh you put electricity through the head and I respond of how would you like it if your mum had electricity put through her head which you know thinking about it is not the most effective question to ask someone um, I mean it's a thought provoker probably but it's not effective and so what happened in that moment it was a combination of what I'd said how I said it and the energy I was given off so to speak it created a situation where it just shut the conversation down I mean that that was pretty much the end of the conversation, and I, after we after I'd wrapped up the interview, one of them came over to me and said, "Look, I'm I'm not very happy with this. I don't like you bringing my mum into this, or you know my friend's mum into this. I don't think that's acceptable." Um, and that really kind of sat a bit uneasy with me those those conversations, and I don't think at the time I thought I'd done anything. I don't think I thought they'd gone badly, so to speak editing them and uploading them and even then i didn't think there was anything wrong with them necessarily but i wasn't comfortable with it i didn't feel right to me and i i knew that something wasn't going very well with it and i thought to myself well hang on a minute here i'm going out onto the streets to have these conversations with people and i'm talking to them about veganism because i want them to stop harming animals but if that conversation therefore ends and they are not it's not they have to agree with you. It's not that, that not that after the end of the conversation they go, you know what, I'm vegan. Congratulations, it took you 50 minutes, but now I'm going to do. it. But that's not really the point of the conversations. Again, let's discuss this later. But that's not really the point of the conversation. The point of the conversation is purely just to get someone to be more receptive to veganism or understanding of veganism than they were at the beginning. That's that's the foundations, that the the purpose of those conversations that we have, those street interviews, those moments uh, uh, anonymous with the voiceless or whatever, wherever it may be. The purpose is is to lay a foundation that should hopefully blossom into them being vegan in the future. Not to turn them vegan on the spot because that's a very challenge challenging challenge. That's you know, that's a it's a big challenge to undertake. And I think you'll always be slightly disappointed if that's the kind of standard at which you want to hold yourself. They must be vegan by the time we finish speaking. Because, you know, it may happen and it probably will happen a couple of times, but realistically it's not always going to be that easy. But anyway, I thought to myself, if if my main goal is is to put a foundation in place to help people become vegan, That I'm not doing very well if at the end of the conversation, they're further away from veganism than they were at the beginning of the conversation. In fact, I'm doing the opposite of what I want to do. I'm actually being a detriment to my own objectives. I am the one in the way of achieving the things that I want to achieve. And it's really strange to think that, you know, this is what I've set out to do. This is the intention of what I'm trying to do is in, in those moments with those conversations, the intention is to help them understand veganism better. But what I'm doing actually contradicts, you know, what is that I want to achieve in those moments. Um, And so that that, I had to ponder on that and self-reflect a little bit and say, okay, well, let's analyze this. You know, what is it that I did? How is it that I acted? You know, am am, am I being too harsh on myself? Maybe they were the problem and, you know, there was no other way to do it. But, you know, in reality, it was very apparent that actually the way I communicated the message was very poor and I didn't do a good job of necessarily helping them get to a point where they would be able to accept veganism better because it was the choice of the questions I asked the, my body language and, and all of these things and so that that led me on a, on a, a process of kind of self-reflection I guess and, and kind of educating myself better but by education what I meant is that when I went out and, and did some more interviews but this time I did them differently and I tried really hard to not be aggressive and, I, and I, you know i say really hard like it's not actually hard to not be aggressive but but i guess what it is hard to do is to not get angry and i think that that's kind of the crux of the problem right so i was having these converse- this conversation with these two south african guys and they were saying things that were making me angry because they were can- trying to condone and justify harming animals they were hunters as well so of course like it's natural to feel angry about a situation where people are trying to justify something that's horrible and causes pain and suffering and all these things. I mean, you're going to feel angry about that. But the problem is what was happening then is I was turning that anger into aggression. And it's not like you're being overtly aggressive. You know, it's not like there's not going to be any actual physical violence. It's just, it's not an overt aggression, but there is is signs of aggression. So body language and tone and, you know, vocabulary and all of these things. Um, I mean, you, you know choice the word you how would you like it you know really putting them on the back first it's almost like it's a it's a it's a shot at them is it how would you like it put someone back you know whoa kind of criticizing and blaming me and, and 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 so I think that what what I had to kind of reflect on in that moment was that I understand why I'm feeling angry I understand how that led to me being slightly aggressive or being confrontational the words confrontational so I understand how I let's separate this down and let's see how the system this kind of chain of command so to speak has happened i care about something so i'm going to go out there and talk about that thing because I want other people to care about it. I'm talking to people who don't care about it and they're telling me why they don't care about it and they're justifying the things that I care about. Therefore, I'm getting angry about that because I care about it. Um, and so, because I can't change them or I'm struggling to change them, that anger is turning to aggression because I'm getting frustrated at them for the things that they're saying and justifying. And then here we go, I become the same way they are. And so, I realize I'm going to feel these moments where I become angry, but then I have to learn how to react appropriately or appropriately to that situation. That's not to mean that we shouldn't feel angry at times. But when we feel it, it's how we use the anger. I think that's really important. And so, okay, so next time I'm prepared, I'm going to go out and have a conversation with someone. They're going to try and justify something that I'm trying to explain against or discuss the other side of the opinion towards. Um, and what I have to understand then is why am I feeling angry and how can I avoid that from turning this way? Um, so let's, let's let's kind of get into that. Let's get into how that process happened for me um, and how next time, the times after, I tried really hard to kind of suppress some of that kind of those feelings from becoming um, more overtly obvious within the conversation so communication is very important we can all understand that and we can all agree with that we've all been in those moments no doubt where it's a conversation with a family member our parents or our best friend or someone on the street whoever it is and we you know we, we sometimes feel that maybe we didn't communicate in the best way or there was a problem in place so before I get into like the methods of communication, I want to discuss things called cognitive biases, you know, which are kind of basically, I guess a way of simplifying it would be to say there are vulnerabilities in our brain in, in, in the way that we kind of process information. So, you know, we are, you know, as humans, quite rational, intelligent, sophisticated beings. But I think at the same time, the problem is what we can often do is hire us, Place ourselves at a higher standard than we actually realistically are. I think we have this thing where we're like, oh, it, it's, it's, I guess it's an ego thing where we're like, we're incredibly intelligent beings, you know, we're very sophisticated, we're very evolved, the most, you know, you know, evolved beings on this planet, and you know, in, in, in technological and social and cultural aspects, of course, and and so we think, well, because we've achieved so much, and because we're capable of achieving so much, therefore, you know, we we kind of think, well, we must be without failure. It's it's a, it's like a superiority complex you know as a species we we suffer from kind of a species-wide superiority complex which is apparent in the fact that we you know use animals as a, as a lesser being um, or we view them as a lesser being which encourages us to use them as objects and commodities because we placed ourselves at a higher standard but the crux to that is because we placed ourselves at a higher standard we've almost not allowed ourselves to have kind of failings and problems in 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 ways that we would for say maybe other animals so cognitive biases i, I have a definition here i actually really like this definition so i'll read it out it says cognitive biases are like optical illusions of thought that make certain ideas seem intuitively right even when it can be proven without doubt that they are wrong which is why so many of us we hold values or we hold opinions that even though they can be proven time and time again to be wrong we kind of deny those facts and we deny that because you know in our brain we have these biases and these processes that allow us to come to the conclusion that we want to come to um, because it, it fits in alignment with how we want to live or it fits in alignment of what we've been taught and we don't want to kind of believe that maybe we've been lied to or manipulated or we've lived our lives in a certain way and in fact that way wasn't the correct way or the best way or all of these things and so one of the most common biases is, is something called confirmation bias. And so confirmation bias, again, I'd like to read this out because I think it's really important um, from from a, a definition point of view. Confirmation bias is where our brains reliably view information that agrees with our preconceptions as more important than information which conflicts with them. So this kind of ties in nicely with what we were talking about last week with media bias and how people sometimes these anti-vegan articles are often the most popular ones because they align with people's preconceived notions of what they believe to be true or actually importantly what they want to be true so if someone doesn't want to be vegan and they have an article or there's two articles ones for vegan and ones against vegan or veganism their confirmation bias means they're going to go for the one that's against veganism and actually without seeming too one-sided i think as vegans we probably are guilty of this too where, you know, if we have something that's pro-vegan versus anti-vegan, you know, we're obviously going to want the thing that's pro-vegan, you know, it's ingrained within us all, and, and, and I don't, again, I, I don't want to kind of suggest that being vegan means you're somehow without these biases, that's not true at all, I think what it means is that we've looked at our biases, our cognitive biases, for this one aspect, probably negating all the different areas of our life in which we haven't quite addressed them, so, you know, I'm not trying to say that vegans aren't guilty of this as well, we are, but I thought it was a nice tie-in for what we were discussing last week confirmation bias emphasizes why the information we are first taught is fundamental okay to how we grow to perceive the world so this is the thing right it really shows the power of kind of that First, initial indoctrination, a cultural indoctrination that we are susceptible of, and so if if you raise a whole culture of people with a certain set of values, and of course, let's say that set of values is that is that it's acceptable to use animals like pigs and cows and chickens and sheep, um, for our own financial gain, but our are also our own personal gain. You know, whether that personal gain be, um, sensory pleasure you know, or money or or whatever it is, you know, if if a society teaches people that this is this is what's very much um moral and acceptable within a cultural standard, then the issue with that is is that's going to be someone's ingrained bias. And it really emphasizes this notion of uh of a confirmation bias, it really shows why that initial indoctrination and why the power of of, of cultural indoctrination and conditioning is so important to address and also most importantly why it's so important to not ignore or push to the side and the reason i'm talking about these biases is because i think we have to understand the psychological processes that people go through that make it harder for them to understand why they should go vegan and we're still prone to all these psychological problems and vulnerabilities and so this is why I want to talk about it. And it's not to give non-vegans slack and say, oh, I well, you know, they, they have these psychological vulnerabilities and therefore I mean, we can't hold them accountable. That's not what I'm saying. People should always be held accountable for the decisions that they make that cause harm to others. If those decisions are immoral, they should be held accountable for them. But we have to understand the mechanisms in place that make these processes a reality and, what, and how they make potentially advocating for something that contradicts the paradigms of society a challenge. And I think, you know, that's 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 really important so i think confirmation bias really fundamentally sums up why people's first initial initial impressions of what is moral and just and correct in this world are very very important to address and it's also why i think it's easier to maybe help younger people get the message sooner because that bias has not been as far ingrained into them as it has for people who are maybe 50 and 60 and 70 years old. People who are younger, their brains are still developing, they're still learning and they're also still open-minded to learning. Um, and I think the older we get, what often happens, this is a generalization probably, but what often happens is we hold on to our views and we hold on to them tighter than we did when we we're younger because we've lived that way longer and we don't want to accept that the way that we've lived is potentially wrong. And so, but younger people, because we're going through school and college and university, we're very much in the mindset that we have lots to learn. And, you know, we need to be taught these things because that's what we're being told. You know, you have to go and have an education, you need to learn things and then you know, then you can be an adult. And the idea is when you leave education, then you have your values and your morals and your ethics and your knowledge and then you can go and, you know, live a good life and have a good career and such. Um, but we, I think we have a more open-mindedness to being susceptible to the um, imparting of new information when we're younger. Confirmation bias also means that we are more likely to only look for information and read articles or resources that agree about exactly what I said before. The idea of we seek out that information. And I think that that is, that is dangerous. And I think often what happens, and this is another part of, of confirmation bias, is that when you read an article, and it, actually let's tie us back into the first week again, right? So remember I read that article lewin edwards or lewin of conway you know know, that well-known butcher that well-known butcher guy who was talking about you know um, why you know veganism is is a childish unfair unbalanced debate okay so you you take a non-vegan who's reading that article and it it does have the other side of the opinion there in the last two paragraphs and the other side of the opinion is is overwhelmingly um more credible but someone's confirmation bias means they're going to read what they want from that Um, and they're not going to actually read all of the subtext all of the different meanings all of the different arguments they're going to pick and choose the bits that they want based on what what aligns with their values more and again to apply this to a vegan context i don't think that we are necessarily without guilt in this department um for example um there's been reports okay so there's been reports that um in this country in the uk since november last year to now 222 dairy farms have closed down and so there have been kind of headlines about that and there's been stories about that you know and our confirmation bias as a vegan means we're going to read that headline 222 dairy farms have closed since november last year or whatever whatever that statistic was i think that was what it was and we go oh my goodness that's amazing dairy farmers are going out of business and they're closing their farms and it's because of vegans Blah 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 that's what your confirmation bias wants you to do but then if you potentially read more into the article there may be i think in the articles there is it attributes some to vegan or the rise of plant-based milks and vegan cheeses and the rise of veganism in general but then you know it'll, oft, it'll also say things like oh um you know some of these dairy farmers have not been farmers for a while and they they've simply been taken off the books you know off the records um some of them it's because it's not profitable for them anymore and that's not necessarily because of veganism that's because um you know these big dairy farms have been opened and so you know th- th- it's harder to be a smaller dairy farm now than it used to be because of supermarket prices and all of these things and that's why it's forced them to go down because actually i think one of the parts of that um reporting was that actually the number of dairy cows that are in the national herd hasn't decreased i think in fact it had increased up until a certain point but it's not decreased in the same way to suggest that this is a um uh that shows that actually this is 222 dairy farms have been closed in the way that we would like it to be that Um, but our confirmation bias probably suggests that we read that and we kind of ignore those bits you know and we go, oh, 222 dairy farms have closed down in four months. Veganism is a player. Oh, okay. And then we just take that as being our main crux of the story. Um, and that doesn't, and again, that doesn't mean that actually as vegans, we haven't had a massive impact in the dairy industry because we have and we continue to do so. But I think, I think in the interest of being fair to ourselves and, and fair to what we have to accomplish, we have to make sure that these, this information, we are processing it correctly because we don't want to A, convince ourselves that the work that we're doing um is overachieving. And we also want to convince ourselves that, you know, we we need we we're doing enough work. You know, the reality is this is only just starting. Um the rise of veganism is only just starting. And we have so much more to do that we cannot afford to get ahead of ourselves. We cannot afford to convince ourselves that we are doing um doing better than we actually are. We must stay grounded in what's actually happening because then we can motivate ourselves to keep fighting. Um and I think that's important. So I, I wanna again apply those cognitive biases to our own situations so we can look at our own behaviors and improve our own communication skills and our own self-reflection skills. Okay. Um and so when we look at kind of religious beliefs and and political beliefs, it's it's this is why we often find that these these ideas kind of permeate between parents and children. Um so, you know, let's say in the deep south of America, you know, your parents are Republican. Well the chances are you are Republican. Or, you know, you live in Brazil, your parents are Roman Catholic, you're probably Roman Catholic. You live in um, Lebanon, your parents are Muslim, you're probably Muslim, right? So the idea is that when we were raised with um, values that are all around us and values from our parents and such, you know, we can see why often political, religious values and morals kind of permeate down the family tree so to speak because we're raised with these processes when we're raised hearing the same information over and over again and if your parents are religious they're only going to tell you things that are positive about religion they're going to speak positively about the religion that they follow and they're going to encourage you to do the same it shows how influential social indoctrination is and how to disagree with a societal norm which is kind of what veganism is we're encouraging people to disagree with a societal norm which is actually really intimidating when you think about it disagreeing, going against, contradicting what is viewed as societally normal. I actually should, I don't think that we should downplay the significance of what it means to do something like that. Because, you know, as I, I, I put some notes down here, because this, these processes are very complicated. And I really wanted to, to kind of, so I've done a bit of research, and I really want to make sure that when I was discussing, it, I was really hitting these points. So I have put some notes down here. And, and And it says, as to disagree with a societal norm, means we not only have to combat society's desire for confirmation bias, but also under the underlying false consensus bias, also known as the bandwagon effect, um, which is predominantly the idea that because the consensus, the majority of people feel a certain way, therefore that way must be correct. The false consensus bias. So because there is a consensus, therefore that must be the right thing. False consensus or a bandwagon effect. Everyone, if everyone jumps in the bandwagon, then that's what we should do. And so this is, and this is another bias, another cognitive bias where we go, well, everyone else feels this way. And how often do you hear this from non-vegans? They say, Oh, ninety 90% of people whatever the statistics are 90% of people eat meat dairy and eggs therefore you must be wrong because the overwhelming majority of people do it that's a false consensus bias it's like okay well just because the majority of people believe something doesn't make that belief correct you know like we can go through let's look at say female genital mutilation is an example right there are certain areas of the world where the consensus of people within those tribes or communities or even countries perhaps believe that, that is a moral and okay act but it isn't so just because the majority of people in that certain area believe that the act of female genital mutilation is okay does not mean that it is okay. It's a false consensus bias. We can look through history and see so many scary, terrifying examples of a false consensus bias where um, just because someone believes uh, or, or or the majority of people believe something doesn't mean that it's true. But this is a um, uh, an an added layer of complication, an added layer of difficulty, confirmation bias, Okay, false consensus bias. Okay, but then unfortunately, it, it 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 does go on. But um, you know, I want to talk about the ostrich effect as well. <laughs> There's so many confirmation biases, status quo bias, ostrich effect. But but before we before we do that, I, I actually wanna touch upon something that I think is quite challenging and I think it's quite difficult maybe for us to to fully kind of not fully get behind but it's a challenging thing to do and that's the idea of challenging our predisposed beliefs as vegans we've done that from a vegan perspective you know we've challenged the beliefs that we had before about using animals and animal consumption and animal exploitation we've challenged those things but I think it's so important that we we consistently strive to do that we must always strive to challenge ourselves you know whatever that may be so you know i let's just use the example of like a political thing so maybe you align politically with one side or the other side i think what we have to do therefore regardless of what side you lay on is listen to the opinions and thoughts and beliefs of the opposing side and what that will do is it will further reaffirm your values and further reaffirm your beliefs but will also make you more capable of arguing and, you know, holding tight to your beliefs. So as vegans, I think what we have to do is with an open mind is listen to what non-vegans are saying. And by non-vegans, in this situation, I particularly mean farmers and, and workers and the industry and, and those who have the most opinions um you know compared to the average consumer who's probably never thought about it before but i think we have to delve into the understanding of why people feel this way why people are in this industry why people act in this way how people condone these behaviors how people justify these behaviors because to just go vegan ourselves go this is wrong okay i know why this is wrong blah 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 i don't want to listen to you i don't want to hear your opinion i don't want to hear is it. actually a, a detriment to our own capability to argue our point of view um debating schools or debating classes one of the things that they actually try to do to make you a better debater is they make you debate the point of view that you don't agree with so you have to write the arguments for the arguments against what you believe in and then argue in favor of the thing you don't believe in and that's a that's that's one of the hardest things you can do so i think as vegans what we have to do is what are all the arguments against veganism now argue as if you care about those arguments now pretend that that is an argument that you believe in. Okay, so let's look at, say, the argument that you know. We go back again to last week. The argument of Lewin Edwards, the well-known butcher from Wales. This was his argument about methane emissions. Okay, now let's argue from his point of view. So his his point of view is multi-pasture grazing system. This is what he was talking about. If you've not heard the episode last week. Multi pasture grazing systems are a system of, of animal farming, which means that you can um, neutralize the methane emissions. Supposedly, I can't actually make a claim as to whether or not that's factually correct. But let's argue in favor and say, okay, well, if we can eliminate methane emissions from this respect, then the whole argument of, say, lamb and, and, and cattle farming being detrimental to the environment no longer exists because we're not actually producing methane, or at least the methane has been counteracted. Um, so therefore, a lot of the arguments that people use for veganism are incorrect. Okay, well, I'm trying to argue in favor of that. It's a quite a difficult one to do, actually. But I'm trying to argue in favor of that. But through doing that, I can realize the absurdity of what it is that I'm arguing for because I go, well, actually, that's only part of the problem, isn't it? And, I, and I, you know, we're look, we're not looking at habitat destruction and wildlife destruction, and species extinction, and biodiversity problems, and water pollution, and land usage, and food usage, and water usage, noise, other underlying problems that exist even in the multi pasture grazing system. Um, what about you know? Actually, I don't want to talk about that now because I want to save that for another podcast. But let, let's 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 look at arguments and let's try and argue in favour of the the opposing view. It's it's a challenging thing to do, and actually, it makes you feel a bit uncomfortable to try and you know to try to try and do that. Oh well, what if we could? kill an animal in a way that caused them no suffering and they weren't aware of it and they didn't have any pain surely that would be moral okay well it's a challenging thing to do but i think that's what we have to do we have to challenge our viewpoints and that applies to vegans challenging ourselves with non-vegan arguments but also i think what it means is as activists can we challenge the way that we are activists can we look at the opposing view of the way that we advocate and the methods in which we you know are activists can we challenge those can we try and see the point of view that's opposite to that? Can we try and understand why people might disagree with the form of activism that we have? Can we try and understand you know, the reasons why that is? Um, so I think that process of challenging is so fundamental to personal growth because that's what we've done to be vegans. We challenged our preconceived notions of what consuming animal products meant to us and meant to others and how it affects others and so i think we have to do that in, in all forms and in, in every area and I'm, I'm, again i don't just mean this from from a vegan thing but i mean from, from 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 any sense of perspective where you have a deeply held belief challenge that belief listen to the opposing viewpoint and at the very least what you'll do is you'll solidify your beliefs but it'll also make you more capable of arguing because you'll have heard what the the other side of the story has to say you'll have heard what the farmer is saying you'll have heard what the slaughterhouse worker is saying or what the average consumer is saying it won't be a surprise to you if you then have a conversation with someone and they use the argument you'll have heard it before and i think often what we become worried about as vegans when we go into conversations is are they going to use an excuse I don't know how to respond to? Are they going to make a point to pull out a statistic that I don't know how to respond to? And that will happen at times, yes, but the more we arm ourselves, the, the more equipped we can be to handle those situations. The best way to arm ourselves is to listen to what they're saying. Go onto Farmers Weekly and read those articles. Go onto YouTube and listen to people that are anti-vegan. You know, go, go read articles that are actually not in favour of veganism. Look at statistics that are not in favour of veganism. Look at studies that are not in favour of veganism and analyse them and look at them. And do the same with pro-vegan things. Look at statistics that are that are pro-vegan and analyze them and see what it's saying and see what it's showing and see if it's proving the point that you wanted to prove or if there's other issues at play there. So many things to do. I think that I like the idea of challenge. I think it's devil's advocate, I suppose, is the notion, isn't it? To play devil devil's advocate with oneself. To play devil's advocate with one's preconceived notions or with one's beliefs. I think it's absolutely crucial that we don't become dogmatic in the sense of that we shut off from trying to listen. I think that, that's, it's it's almost, dogmatism is almost an absence of empathy. It's an absence of, of, of the ability to to try, to even attempt to rationalize someone's beliefs. And I think when you go down that road of dogmatism, it's, it's a very dangerous road because it makes you completely useless at arguing your own points of view. You know, oh, you're an animal murderer. You're an animal abuser, you know objectively speaking those those may be true but we have to understand why it is that people abuse animals and murder animals and just merely calling someone an animal a murder animal abuser does not necessarily help them understand why it is that they are these things and also to play devil's advocate of myself now is is someone a murderer in that capacity if, if they actually believe that what they're doing is moral but importantly if they've been told that what they're doing is moral Someone goes to another country for war and they kill someone because they've been told that that's what they're supposed to do. Does that make them a murderer? If they've been given those orders by someone else and they've been told by a whole society of people in a false consensus situation that to kill that person at that moment is a justified act. Well, that's not... not, You you can't claim that... you, You wouldn't necessarily call that person a conscious murderer. And I guess that's what I'm saying about this situation. If someone takes the life of an animal because they've been told that they're allowed to, they're supposed to, and the majority of people want them to. Does that make them a conscious murderer? No, of course not. And so, it's uncomfortable to play devil's advocate with oneself because you don't want to necessarily think that someone could harm an animal and not do so with a with an, a, a mindset that is negative or a mindset that they are a bad person. I think one of the issues that we do as a species is we like to box people, don't we? Good, bad, evil, you know, pure, whatever those those labels may be. And we like to it's almost like you dehumanize someone because to accept that someone who is um, doing something that is bad possesses traits that make them good is really scary. You think about serial killers or murderers and you think, well, you know, the whole life isn't run by doing purely evil things. Yes, they are evil people in what they do but they also are human and they have human traits and human characteristics and they do things that probably we do as well. And what we like to do is dehumanize them. You make them all bad because it makes it easier to rest at night and it makes it easier to live in a world where these polar opposites. Most people are great people, good people, but then you have a few really bad people and they're all bad and they're consumed by complete darkness and, but they're just a very tiny minority. But actually, the world is not full of that system. The world is full of people that all possess bad traits and do bad behaviors and commit bad things but are also capable of goods and do good things and do normal things and act like regular you know humans whatever that means regular humans what an unusual phrasing that is but i think the the point of what i'm trying to make is that we have to understand the mechanisms in place that cause people to do things Um, and part of that is these cognitive vulnerable so to speak you know brain biases so let's look at status quo bias as well status quo bias means that humans tend to be apprehensive of change i think so many of us don't like the concept of change which often leads us to make choices that guarantee things remain mostly the same um so again let's apply this to a vegan context most people false consensus bias most people believe in not being vegan or aren't vegan should i say aren't vegan and therefore if you know part of the problem of that is because we, we're kind of scared of change you know some people really embrace change but i, I think for the most part a lot of us are, ch- are very scared of fundamental change a complete rehauling of our own lives or indeed of how society is constructed that's quite terrifying you know for better or for worse this is the system we have and that's probably for worse but we uh, a lot of the time we become very comfortable and you see this in, in, in many situations where we, we put comfort sometimes in front of our own best interests and you think well surely to be comfortable is to be in one's best interests but again it's almost a paradoxical situation where you can be comfortable in an environment or comfortable with something because you're used to it and, and fear of, of breaking away from that you know even though actually what could happen potentially might be a lot better for your own um, your own life and your own self and your own capabilities and possibilities even though that may be the 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 consequence of breaking free from this environment that we're in, we become apprehensive and almost scared to do so because it's change. And with change comes uncertainty. And that idea of uncertainty is terrifying. I think, that, you know, if you look at maybe some of the, the best horror films that have ever been made, there's a sense of ambiguity, a mystery. We don't understand, you know, I, I look at fear and how often the times of fear come times of, of, of mystery and a lack of comprehension about a situation how that 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 often makes that fear even worse and so if you're scared of change you know that 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 it's that mystery of what if what if right what if my life gets worse what if i can't come back to how i am now and and although i i recognize there are problems now i'm very comfortable in this situation status quo bias a kind of a a psychological difficulty to to want to change which is you look at veganism and and you know it is a very easy thing to do and for most people you know you know the concept of being vegan is vegan and going to the shop and buying something else is easy but it's also a big change and i don't think we should necessarily underestimate the power of that change and what a change you know how it can affect your life in different ways social pressure and all these different things what about ostrich, the ostrich effect? You know, let's look at what the ostrich effect is. Um, this is what I'm actually quite fascinated by. Um, so I, got, I just want to read this out. The ostrich effect is a, a bias that causes people to avoid negative information by simply closing off from the information or sticking their head in the sand, like that, that speech hence the name the ostrich effect the idea that we bury our heads in the sand and now as vegans we say this a lot you know you bury your head in the sand you're ignoring the information it's kind of like you put your fingers in your ears and go la 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 because you don't want to hear it and so but but again we do this all the time and um you could look at maybe um a few examples could be fast fashion and, and the garment industry where look we, we all know what happens for primark clothes or for walmart clothes like we know that there's exploitation there but you know, we, we just want to hide away from it because it makes us feel uncomfortable, or it challenges the way that we live, or it makes our lives slightly uncomfortable to to have to understand that plastics is another use, and animals is another point. You know, animal exploitation, where we go, oh, you know, yes, this terrible things happened in this farm or in this slaughterhouse, and all these horrible things happening to animals. But I just want to bury my head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist because it's challenging me and it's making me feel uncomfortable. And it's causing me to look at the way that I live and I don't want to do that. And I want to be comfortable and I don't want to change. And I want to do what everyone else is doing. I only want to look at information that reaffirms my beliefs and makes me feel good about how I live. And I don't want to accept that there's other information out there that juxtaposes that or makes me feel this way. I just want to have a nice comfortable life where i think about my own life and i'm comfortable and i don't have to worry about other countries and other people and what's happening to animals just let me be that's what our brains are saying just let me be um you know we've evolved into this really complex interdependent connected world and that's an amazing thing in so many ways but it presents so many challenges because now we're aware of what's happening to animals and people and all these things because there's so much information that we've been bombarded with all the time and if you think that we've evolved from these beings who lived in in tribes and communities and we were very close-knit and very small and everyone had their jobs and their roles and each role and job was intrinsically um, essential to the survival of that tribe and community and you know we only had to care about these specific things how are we going to get fed are we going to be safe are we protected do we have defense all of these things but now we've evolved so much especially saying like the past 50 years or so even in just the invention of the internet, where all of a sudden this information is just bombarding us and that's such an amazing thing because it's allowing for a ethical conscious growth within people because we're aware of things that simply we could never have been aware of before but it doesn't come without its problems and that problem being that perhaps society has evolved faster than we have as beings perhaps technology has evolved faster than we are necessarily able to uh, to deal with it you know the dangers of 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 you know social media the dangers of technological usage and all these problems and how it can lead to depressions and anxiety and and, all, and a whole host of problems for people and I, I often think that you know we evolve so quickly as a, as a society but actually as as beings are we evolving fast enough potentially to to keep up with this and i think our cognitive biases maybe suggest um that we're not and so the ostrich effect is 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 apparent in non-vegans because let's say for example these exposés are coming out all the time an expose of a pig farm of a dairy farm of a a chicken farm of a slaughterhouse whatever it is exposés come up all the time and people see it and it makes them upset and it makes them angry and it makes them disappointed in our species and all these things and then we just make up excuses and we hide away and we say oh that's one farm that's one bad practice you know, for example, so, you know, in 2017, I co-directed a documentary called Land of Hope and Glory, um, which is available on my YouTube if you've not seen it. Um, And basically, it's an expose of um, UK animal farming. And we look at what happens to land animals from birth to death in the UK. And in the documentary, we um, look at just over 100, 100 different UK farm and slaughterhouse facilities. Um, from Scotland down to Cornwall, so from the from the top down to the bottom, from Wales to to Norfolk. So again, you know, from from across east to west, um, or west to east, I should say. Um, we've looked at the, we looked at all these different areas, and we we selected a whole host of different facilities, and yet we still get told, "Oh, that's one bad farm. Oh, that's not you know that doesn't represent the system as a whole. That's not fair." Where 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 You know, we're not representing the industry fairly and representatively. We're taking, you know, bad examples of bad practices and bad farming, whatever the excuse may be. But really, the whole documentary, for the most part, just shows standard industry legally condoned practices, the gassing of pigs, the separation of dairy calves from their mothers, the killing of animals with knives or the mutilations of animals. We're really just showing what is standard and legally condoned by our governments, and by welfare organizations, all of these different things. And so it's really just showing the system. It's not about picking isolated cases, yet people still don't want to accept that. Oh, you're not representing the industry fairly. You're not representing the industry um, without bias even though actually we're just showing what happens and so that's that's the ostrich effect it's like oh i'm feeling hypocritical i'm feeling uncomfortable i'm just gonna just hide away pretend that doesn't exist and get on with my life because it's causing me to to feel to feel very uncomfortable unfortunately what often happens is instead of acknowledging the negative information this is kind of what it boils down to the non-vegan will simply outright ignore it and instead pretend the situation doesn't exist that happens in america that happens in Australia. That doesn't happen on the farms where I buy, you know, my meat, my dairy, my eggs. know, in the slaughterhouse where I buy these products, the animals are killed humanely. These lines that we hear over and over again on my farms or in my slaughterhouses, all my, 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 it's a disconnect from the fact that what you engage in is actually the same as all that horrible stuff that you want to turn away from and all that horrible stuff you want to ignore. We want to disconnect from the fact that we as individuals are, 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 are just as much part of the perpetuation As anyone else, the perpetuation of violence, the perpetuation of exploitation. We as individuals and the companies and industries that we support are just as guilty as all those horrible ones that we see on films and on documentaries or on exposes or in the media or wherever it is. We want to disconnect from that. I buy my dairy products from a farm where the farmer loves his cows and treats them as his children. Actually, no. You buy your dairy products from a farm where animals are treated in the exact same way with the same practices, the same condoned behaviours as the farm that you saw expo- exposed in you know, the media that time or in that documentary, Land of Hope and Glory, or whatever it is. You're not absent from the problem. You are the problem. You are part of that problem. And, and though you may not consciously be aware of it and you may have all these issues and these biases that, that, that interfere with you rationally understanding the situation, that doesn't mean you're not part of it um, challenge our beliefs we must challenge how we feel challenge you know the ways we feel and and challenge information even if that information is positive to what we believe in and that's those studies and those statistics and that data may on face value agree with us still challenge it and still try to further and, and get to the bottom of it okay so like i said i wanted to explore those psychological things and i wanted to look at you know why there are barriers in place for people to to not why there are barriers in place that prevent people from going vegan straight off the bat? You know, and repetitions are really important part of of kind of an acceptance of knowledge. Repetition allows us to slowly get to grips with that knowledge, slowly accept it to be true, and then slowly realizing that we have to change because of it. Uh, for me personally, before I was vegan, um, I you know I was aware of this stuff, and at first I wanted to disregard it, and then I accepted it, and through that acceptance, I realized. I should go vegan, it's like those kind of phrases, I should go vegan, and I will go vegan, it's, I haven't gone vegan, but I should, and I will, it's kind of an acceptance that you know inevitably is going to happen, and that, that comes through repetition, and then you hear it a couple more times, and it becomes repetitive again, and you go, well, you know what, I am vegan, I'm going to make that change now, so um, I think, this could be completely wrong, but I, I, I think it's something like to fully understand something, or to fully absorb the meaning of something, we know as humans we generally have to to hear it or, or be shown it something like 11 times something like that it might be wrong but it's something like 11 times and so if, if, if you're having a conversation with someone about veganism it's the first time they've come across it the first time they've ever been asked any of these questions um they might deny it the ostrich effect they probably won't want to hear it, it makes them uncomfortable but then it's important that we keep having these conversations and keep churning that media out and keep pushing you know that information out because there'll be people along there who who maybe on the eighth or ninth time of repetition or whatever it is, and so we just keep churning out, keep pushing out there because over time people change. But most importantly, there are these barriers in place, these psychological barriers in place that stop people from getting it instantly. Again, it's not about cutting people slack, but we have to understand these things because it's through that understanding that we can become better communicators because we can empathize and we can empathize empathize with with why they feel the way that they do okay so let's move on Like we've talked about cognitive biases and such and so let's go into communication as a whole how can we communicate so let's go back to what i was saying right at the beginning about my personal kind of growth in this area that's not you know like a personal development a journey into hopefully becoming a better communicator and and, and whatever that you know whatever that means to you and so um i started adopting this kind of thing where i was asking questions and i did it a little bit at the beginning but I also thought that the majority of the conversation, or at least a large part of that conversation I had with those South African guys, was often me just stating my opinion, um, or just stating, or even stating facts. Okay, stating what is true, um, which is obviously different to stating opinion. You know, um, if something is true, it is true objectively. And so I often find myself stating my opinion, but actually what I was doing was stating kind of what was objectively true as well. But it doesn't really help just to tell someone something. You kind of say, this is the reality. This is that. This is this. This is how you should feel. Because it, it doesn't help people understand themselves better. And actually, what I learned when I tried to process how I f- why I felt a certain way was that a lot of the problem was when you tell someone how they should feel, they kind of get annoyed about that, right? So if you're maybe... Let, let's think of an example where you're feeling... Stressed out, okay. You're feeling stressed, and you go into work or whatever, and your your coworker looks at you and says, "Oh, you you look stressed today, um, or you you must be stressed today." You you know you, your reaction is to get annoyed at them. It's like, don't tell me how I feel, don't tell me how I look, don't tell me how I'm acting, don't tell me what I'm doing. We don't like to be told, oh you're doing this, or you're doing that, or you're this way. or that it makes us annoyed. But if someone's like say are you okay. You know, Maybe you, you recognize in yourself, oh, that person looks stressed. And you go, oh, how are you feeling today? Are you okay? Well, that's probably not going to rally you up that much. You're probably going to be like, well, actually, no, I'm actually feeling a bit stressed today. Now, I've woke up and I've got so much work to do or I had a really bad night's sleep or I had this nightmare or whatever it is and I'm actually feeling really stressed today. Okay, well, then you can have a conversation about it because the person feels like you know they've been asked to explain something, not saying, oh, you look stressed today. Explain yourself. And I think that's kind of a similar situation where I found myself just generally asking his questions because it helps and then I, I, I learned that this this process of asking questions is is called the Socratic method of questioning now Socrates um, was a Greek philosopher he lived in Athens in the 5th century so a long, long time ago and a lot of the the, the core fundamental um, teachings of the Socratic dialogue is the process of asking questions rather than simply telling someone how they should feel. And so this is used, um, some of the big examples is it's used in uh, a courtroom. So for cross-examination, you know, you can get people to reveal, you know, kind of secrets or hypocrisies in their statement or in their beliefs or whatever if you cross-examine them by asking them questions why did you do this how did you feel that time where were you at this time and then when someone if you say "Oh, where were you at this time on a specific day and they say oh well i was in, in my car driving wherever and then you can basically expose hypocrisy because they're stating something as themselves which means that they believe it to be true um but it's also used in therapy so if you have a you know a therapist and you know you ask the the person that you're you know giving therapy to questions because it helps them better understand themselves the purpose of therapy isn't to be told what's wrong with you or to be told about your life the purpose of therapy is for you to explore how you feel why you feel to explore the mechanisms that have happened throughout your life that have caused you to get to this point it's not to be told these things it's to learn them within yourself and that's really the same process about encouraging someone to go vegan you're encouraging someone to learn within themselves why they think or why they know they should be vegan. So the Socratic method fundamentally is about asking a series of questions. And again, I want to read this out because I really like it, that forces learners to question their assumptions in order to eliminate contradictions. It is used in courtrooms exactly. So it's about allowing someone to question themselves because they reveal hypocrisies within their own assumptions and within their own beliefs. And through doing so, they can embark on a process of understanding how they feel and how they think they should live. So it's it's primarily used as a great strategy for encouraging people to question moral and philosophical dilemmas. Um, the purpose of Socratic dialogue, this is again, I really like this, I want to read this out kind of verbatim. The purpose of Socratic dialogue is is not to force one's own beliefs onto the other participants/participants. Instead, it is a means in which all participants can work cooperatively to reach the truth. So, when we have conversations with someone and we're discussing veganism, the the purpose of the conversation is not to get someone to necessarily just agree with with, with us for the sake of agreeing with us the purpose of it is that we work together to generate a line of questioning a line of dialogue that helps them understand their own beliefs and helps them understand that and it just what so happens to their own beliefs in this situation of the beliefs of, of veganism hopefully so it's not about forcing one's own views telling someone how they should feel or why they're wrong or why this is right you embark on a, on, on a process of dialogue in which you guide someone along in the discussion to help them understand their own moral and ethical beliefs um in essence, I guess the word would be you are a facilitator. So it's a conversation you are facilitating the conclusion within the person's own self, because you know fundamentally we all more or less possess the same belief that animal cruelty is wrong, that we should abstain from harming others wherever possible. That causing needless suffering should be something that is that is morally um, abject these are the kind of core beliefs that that make up our society and should make up any sort of civilized and contemporary society the abstinence of harm the reduction of suffering and the reduction of a individualistic participation within that suffering you know am i as an individual responsible for the suffering that needs to be reduced in society so we are in essence as a uh, as a conversationalist within that dialogue facilitating that person's recognition of their own morals and their own ethics um i like this actually this is really nice this ensures that those you are speaking to are not passive listeners so if if you're so say you're um being lectured at and someone's just telling you this 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 you are a passive listener but actually the purpose of a dialogue from the socratic method is to instead Change people from being passive listeners into active agents in the conversation and the acquisition of knowledge. So, in, in 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 kind of a sense of a lecture, you kind of have things told at you, and you write notes, and, and you you learn in that way. But through through a Socratic dialogue, you are you are in the pursuit of the acquisition of knowledge yourself. In fact, you are, you are the own personal agent for the acquisition of knowledge. This is a quote from Socrates. Socrates said that knowledge begins the moment one admits their own ignorance. And so fundamentally, it, what that means is, is that it's through the acceptance of not knowing that we can begin our journey into, lo- into learning and into knowing. One of the crucial things to remember when getting into a conversation is that the person we are talking to is basing their judgment of veganism on the conversation. And as such, it is important that we are rational and level-headed, level-headed because to to come across as being irrational or to come across as being angry is to paint veganism as being irrational and angry but i want to go back to that 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 socrates that socrates quote knowledge begins the moment one admits their own ignorance and i feel like that's one of the reasons i was trying to reinforce earlier that notion of challenging our beliefs whatever those beliefs may be let's just accept the fact that actually we are a a human being in a very complex interdependent life that exists on this planet but actually this planet exists within a very complex and interdependent web of life that is a solar system a galaxy a universe and really we are just a you know a grain of sand on a huge massive beach and really we know very little about the foundations and and workings of this crazy thing that we've been born into and it's that kind of grounding thing that actually we don't really know that much and that's what's exciting about life you look at the, the you look at the the most complex philosophical questions. You know what it means to be alive. Do we have a purpose in life? What is our purpose in life? You know, is there a purpose in life? We look at the foundations. What is the meaning of life? These where did we come from? These very deep philosophical questions. Part of the reason they're so exciting is because we don't really know anything about them at all you know, there are so many different views and so many different opinions and so many different reasons to believe these different things. It's exciting to to think about it because there is really no answer to them. It's with the absence of, of knowledge and the the acceptance of the absence of knowledge that we can begin to learn. I think that's a really, I really like that quote. I think it's, and I think it's very pertinent to the notion of veganism. um, So Socrates, in essence, is saying that we have to help people understand, but also understand within ourselves, that there is so much that we've yet to comprehend and so much that we've yet to question about our own ability. We are a facilitator in the acquisition of knowledge. But yes moving on to the idea of how we come across and kind of how we present ourselves because like i said before we have to make sure that we don't come across as irrational and we don't come across as as angry because to do so is to represent veganism as being irrational and angry you know that angry vegan stereotype that militant extremist vegan stereotype portrays veganism as being this angry thing where all of those who go vegan are these kind of oh we're militant is it's the that boxing idea right we want to label people as being a certain thing so that we don't think that we're a part of it we look at a serial killer and we say ah well they're all evil because then we can't associate those human those kind of mirrored human qualities that we possess as well just basic things that humanize someone we want to dehumanize it that angry vegan stereotype if we can paint all vegans as being militant angry and violent It makes it so much easier for someone not to want to be vegan because they don't want to accept that if they go vegan they'll become these things they don't want to become these things so let's portray all vegans as being this this thing and let's not think actually that most vegans are just well like all vegans primarily are just normal people that go about their days and have jobs like everyone else does and do all the things that normal people do because that makes it accessible and that makes it you know more understandable for why we should change we want to box vegans label them put them in this tiny little thing that we call angry violent and militant and then people don't want to do that because they don't want to associate themselves um with those traits but i think at the same time it's so important therefore that we don't perpetuate those ideas um and part of that is just by being logical and rational and a lot of people go vegan for that for that emotional thing you know um i love animals it's it's wrong to kill animals um it, it, it's it's an emotional thing and, and veganism is emotional but i i don't actually think for me it's not kind of like that you know um yes seeing animals being harmed is, is 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 very upsetting yes it makes me cry um yes it makes me deeply deeply upset um beyond just being upset you know very very you know very dark very dark feelings emotional feelings but also when i see an animal being murdered in a slaughterhouse it's kind of like yes it makes me sad it makes me upset but i also think to myself this is logically absurd this is rationally absurd this is a form of insanity that you know permeates through our society. So yes, a veganism is an emotional thing, but it's actually just purely logical and rational, um, and that's why I really, obviously, that's one of the th- main things that I enjoy about being vegan, is just how grounded and just logic it is. Like it's just intellectually sound. Um, and I think you have, we have to kind of come across with that, 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 that idea. Um, and by that, I don't mean like, oh, in, like superior, intellectually more superior. That's not what I'm saying. I just mean we have to be well-educated, um, because when we're well-educated, all these arguments and all these excuses become completely insignificant, um, insignificant in their credibility, you know? So we're going to have a whole host of excuses laid upon us and ideas and, you know, and, um, arguments laid upon us that, um, Are supposed to be in favor of not being vegan. And all we have to do is have the logical response to why that's not true. And that goes so far in in helping people understand veganism. So when I say about it being logically sound, I just mean educate yourself. It's not about coming across as like, oh, uh, intellectually superior, not at all, no. It's simply just having the responses in place. And that comes through a process of um, education. And actually, the the more more educated we, we are on it, the easier it is to actually converse about veganism or converse in veganism because actually when I reflect again on that conversation those two South African guys I think part of the issue is I didn't necessarily know what to say back and then because I don't know what to say back I'm angry at them but I'm also annoyed at myself because I feel like I'm letting the animals down and I'm letting the message and the movement down because I don't know how to respond effectively and I think that's one of the main drawbacks for people is maybe they don't want to engage in those conversations because they don't they're afraid they're not going to say the right thing or they're not going to have the correct response um, and so, it, it, through education, you can become less angry, maybe, or appear less angry because you can you know what you're going to say, so just just say it as you would in a conversation because you don't you don't need to be defensive, you don't need to be annoyed or irritated because actually, appearing irritated, or or appearing kind of like angry, as we said before, is going to push people away. Um, I think that's I think that's 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 kind of the core thing for me is just learn as much as you can and i've probably said that quite a few times today um so again i've kind of got a list of of different things that i kind of wrote down um that i think of that, that i think are really important and so i'm talking about being educated um but part of that facilitation of the conversation similar when you're a therapist you're facilitating the exploration of the patient if you like um listening Right, listening is just the most basic foundation of being a good therapist. Just listen to what the person's saying. And I think that that's another thing about when we have conversations with non-vegans, it's just listen to what they're saying. You know, I'm guilty of interrupting people and we, we all are, but actually just let, let person let the person say, it. unless they're they're going off these massive tangents and they're throwing like five arguments off you off you and you go, Well, hang on a second, let's respond to these arguments properly. Because that's something that will happen is you know, if you're in having an argument with someone. You just want to throw so many arguments at them, they become overwhelmed and they won't be able to address them all. And in the back of your mind, even if they address four of the six arguments you've thrown at them, they won't have addressed those other two arguments. So, unless someone's throwing loads of arguments at you as like a diversionary tactic, so you kind of address them all, just listen to the person, they hear what they have to say, and also seem, I guess the word is, well, I mean, it's, it's like seeming relatable, right? So, what I mean by that is most of us weren't born vegan. I certainly was not. And most of us in this world weren't. If you were more power to you, that's amazing. But most of us weren't born vegan, which means that for a large portion of our life, potentially, most of us were, you know, involved in the system that we now are against, and we we were involved in the harm of animals. And so I think we have to kind of have that air of relatability to be like, I understand why you feel this way. And th- and this is kind of what I put down here: listening and seeming relatable are two of the most effective things to do. As it makes the person you're talking to feel more comfortable and less judged, and that's exactly when you can have a genuinely effective conversation you know if, if we're talking over each other, if we're ignoring each other's opinions and ignoring each other's arguments and and we're not listening the the conversation is just going to shut down when you're involved in a conversation with someone you want to feel like you're being listened to, and likewise the person you're speaking to you wants to feel like they're being listened to um so I put down I think it's always important to act as if you can learn something from someone as opposed to acting as if we kind of know all there is to know and what I mean by that is maybe you know there are things that we haven't fully kind of you know there may be aspects that we don't understand And so let's apply it to last week's thing again let's talk about that well-known butcher again you know i don't know if multi-pasture grazing system or a multi-pasture grazing system can theoretically be methane neutral i don't i don't know that but at the same time i shouldn't pretend that i do and i also shouldn't pretend that it's immediately wrong because it contradicts maybe what i feel about methane emissions and animal farming um and so i think if someone says something to you don't don't be afraid of saying i wasn't aware of that I wasn't you know I didn't know that before thank you for telling me about that because I didn't know don't be afraid of saying that it's not it's not an admittance of the whole philosophy of veganism is wrong because someone says something to you that you didn't know and you've learned something from that. That's a really powerful thing because now you can become better equipped to deal with that. And you can think about what it is that they've said. And you can think, well, this person made a point I've not heard about before. And through that, I learned something myself in the conversation. And actually, I didn't even know how to respond to that point. But what I've done now is I've gone home and I've learned about it and I've thought about it. And now next time someone brings that up to me, I'll know exactly what it is that I need to say. Um, Another point I put down is about taking arguments seriously. And and, and what I mean by that is, is don't become annoyed by people's responses you know don't like we should like just kind of like roll our eyes but like here we go again and, um, and i and i always have one in my head when when i think of this and that's that plants you know plants are feelings arguments um and it's so tempting when someone says yeah but what about plants to roll our eyes and go what are you talking about you know But actually, that's really not effective. And I think what we have to do is understand, and this isn't always true, right? You know, we have some people that are going to say comments to try and wind us up and they don't believe it to be true and they're trying to be awkward and all these things. But actually, I think for the most part, we should grant credit to the people we're speaking to in the sense of they actually probably believe a lot of the arguments that they're saying. And so for me, before I was vegan, I used to believe in the organic myth the free-range myth, you know, I used to believe in the humane slaughter myth, I believed in all of these different things and so if I was having a conversation with a vegan and I used these arguments to try and debunk veganism, I'd actually be saying them very sincerely and very seriously and I think we have to understand that when we have these conversations with people, the majority of the time I would say these arguments are being used seriously and sincerely and the people we're talking to genuinely believe them to be true So what we have to do is not be irritated by the fact that someone believes this way, understand why they believe this way, the biases, the conditioning, the education from media and, you know, supposedly reputable sources, understand how people have got to this conclusion, and just show them through logic and rational thinking why that that belief or why the argument is actually not correct or holds no veracity or validity when it comes to arguing against veganism we have logic on our side, so let's just use it. Um, again, don't resort to visible annoyance and anger is is kind of the point of that. Um, and I put down this, this word validation. Validate someone's argument. And I think when we think of validation, it's um, an admittance of If you validate something it's like i'm admitting that to be true but not necessarily so what i mean by a validation of someone's argument isn't to say you're right or that's true or you're correct which is a form of validation it's more of like an understanding so say someone says um you need to eat animal products to live and you would say well tell me what nutrients is it in animal products that you need to live and most of the time they'll probably say protein And so we might say, oh, that's wrong. You know, that might be like our initial thing, oh, it's ridiculous, whatever. But actually, what I I believe, for me, that works effectively is to validate someone's response. And so by that, what I mean is, I understand why you feel that way. Yes, we can get protein from animals, and we've been taught that actually protein from animals is the best source of protein, and so that's what I was raised to believe as well. Validate someone's response, and then say... But do you think we can get protein from plants? But have you considered that we can get protein from plants? But, you know, something like that, you know, you validate someone's response and it makes them feel like they're A, being listened to, they're they're also being respected and they're being treated fairly within the conversation. They're not being demeaned, they're not being treated as intellectually inferior or morally inferior or any of these things. They're being listened to, their arguments have been taken seriously and then you prompt them with a question that just shows why the argument's wrong. And then they'll go, Well, oh, you know, most people will be like, oh, well, actually, yes, you, I know you can get protein from plants, um some people might just be like yeah you're right you can get protein from plants some might, people might say oh i know you can get protein from plants but i thought that actually the protein in animals was much better and you go well again i understand that that's something we've been taught and we think about athletes we think about bodybuilders and we think well you know they must be a beacon of, of why protein from animals is better but have you thought about the fact that actually there's loads of vegan athletes have you heard about vegan bodybuilders you know have you heard about these things and, and you can generate a conversation in that way and it's it's constantly each step of the conversation is showing why their last question or their last question or their last statement is incorrect but it's doing so in a way that's helping them come to their conclusions themselves without feeling like they're being belittled within the conversation so i really like that that kind of idea of, of validation because that's how we create a really nice respectable conversation i understand why you feel that way but have you considered um so let's move past kind of like vocal or like you know um dialogue cues so to speak dialogue techniques i think um, and, and maybe move on to more body language the last thing i will say probably about dialogue is is be careful of what vocabulary you're using in, in a discussion and by that i mean try to avoid words like you and your so i think it's 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 good to say to not say this is your fault or you are causing this so say we're an anonymous the voiceless and someone's watching some footage you might go up to them and say how does this make you feel And they might say, oh, it makes me feel really bad. And you'll say, well, okay, can you explain why Uh, it makes you feel bad? And they might say, well, these animals are clearly suffering, and that makes me upset because I don't want to see animals suffering. I I think it's very important that we don't say, well, this is your fault. You are causing this. I think the next question would be, do you think that the fact that we buy animal products and we put animals into slaughterhouses, do you think that means that we as consumers are responsible for that animal suffering? And I think that's such a nicer way of phrasing the question and and it it doesn't remove responsibility or accountability from that person. But if you say, well, do you think you're responsible for this or your actions are causing this? That puts people on the defensive a little bit because they feel like they're being personally blamed for what's happening. And yes, they are personally to blame for what's happening, but they're also involved in a larger system that is a we. And also when we use the word we, we're including ourselves in that conversation and and what i like about that is it's removing that idea of moral superiority we're not creating a dynamic where it's us versus them i'm the vegan you're the non-vegan and therefore i am superior to you in this fashion because i am not consuming these products it's just a nice baseline for we're all in this conversation together. We're all involved in these things together. None of us or neither of us are particularly any more worse or, 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 or less or more accountable. This is a burden that we all face collectively as a species. We are a we. And and so I really like that. Avoid you and your is it's a we and it's us. I, I think that's much more inclusive and it's much more palatable for people. But let's move on to like body language and stuff like that. So, you know, like I said before, I think, you know actually I, I have this I have this thing and I, I still sometimes can be guilty of doing it um, when i get annoyed and when i get sometimes a bit irate and angry i start to point a little bit and actually pointing is a really aggressive form of body language it's a real kind of you know pointing um, and so i actually have to be very careful not to point when i get a bit irate and if you might have seen some videos where i kind of bring the pointing out and that's that's normally an indicator that i'm, I'm getting a little bit kind of tetchy i'm getting a little bit more on the irate side and i just need to kind of like cool it off a little bit um, so body language is something we have to be really strongly aware of because we could be speaking really calmly and really logically and really rationally, but if we've kind of got our fist clenched or our arms crossed or we're pointing, it negates a lot of what we're saying, so that there's a few there's a few elements to a conversation there's what we're saying, there's how we're saying it, and there's our body language as well. I feel like these are the three components, and if one of them' is out of sync then the whole thing becomes a little bit disorientated. So we have to be educated, know what to say, know um, kind of how to say it, but also know how to have our body. And so, you know, we could be like really chilled out, really relaxed, but then shouting really aggressively. And that's going to be really jarring. Or at the same time, we could be speaking really calmly and really logically, but have clest, you know, fists clenched and be really erratic with how we're moving. And again, that's jarring. So body language is, is really is really key. So these are some of the things that I kind of, try and keep mindful of when i'm having a dialogue and that's one of those things is is not to have arms folded folding arms is kind of like there's a couple of things to it our midriff is kind of our most vulnerable area, you know where our organs are kept so when, when we're kind of crossing our arms it's a sign of defense it's like we're trying to protect the like the precious bit of our body we're trying to protect ourselves so it it shows a sign of, of defensiveness, perhaps of nervousness, of anxiety, of vulnerability. And it's not that we shouldn't appear vulnerable. And it's not that we're not allowed to be nervous or anxious because we are. But I think it's good to, to kind of have our, our, kind of our torso not protected by our arms. It, it shows that we're more confident, that we're more inviting. If, you have your, you know, if you're given a talk and you have your arms out, you're inviting somebody in rather than closed off and you kind of keep someone at bay. But also folding arms is slightly, it kind of shows a lack of kind of um, respect. It's kind of like, oh, I don't want to listen to your views. I'm going to fold my arms and, and, and kind of be a bit grumpy or whatever it is. I think folding arms is a sign of dismissive behavior as well no points no clenching which is what I've already spoken about and also eye contact is really important eye contact symbolizes listening it symbolizes that you're actively involved in what the other person is saying um so we shouldn't be looking away all the time and trying to not look we give someone some eye contact it makes them feel like they've been respected and listened to really important but at the same time is the tricky thing we've got to give people kind of little breaks so you know no one likes to be stared at right so no one likes to have just their eyes pinned and just be stared at so it's called like a little psychological break you know we've all had it when someone's giving this really intense eye contact and we start to get a bit nervous and we start thinking about our face is something on my face you know do i look a bit weird or you know, is there something in my hair or whatever give people a little psychological break so you can look you can look down you can look away you can kind of like you know do something with your hands to symbolize kind of a freedom of expression in a sense where you're giving someone eye contact you've been listened to but you're also giving them a psychological break not to get too anxious and worried about themselves also, don't be afraid to laugh, I wrote down here, and, and this is a really difficult one to play. You know, if someone's trying to make a joke that's justifying violence, then, you know, it's, it's not good to laugh. But if someone says something that's kind of a bit funny and it's not directly related to the justification or condoning of the violence towards animals, that laughter suggests, again, it's a bit more of a unison and cohesion of conversation, whereas two people involved in it, and we're both on the same platform, and neither of us are too snobby to laugh at each other's jokes, and that's all nice. So don't be afraid to laugh if someone says something that they find to be funny and you find to be humorous or so even if you don't i don't think there's a problem with that um and also kind of how we position our bodies if we're kind of turned away it's a little bit like we're not really you know getting on with someone so try and face someone directly um engage with someone so those kind of body language things um a couple more things just to talk about quickly before we before we wrap up and one of those is called the mirroring technique where we're going to act differently depending on who it is we're speaking to so for example if we have a, an elderly couple we're going to talk to them differently to how we would like a group of teenage guys for example you know a, te- a group of teenage guys may swear and they may be a little bit more jokey and whatever and so you know you may want to kind of mirror in that behavior and what i mean is if if you engage in a conversation and that person does swear or they do use you know swear words for example okay um you might want to use that word you might want to use, you might want to swear back you might want to say something back and, and what that does, again, it, it, it bridges the gap Between the two people talking, but at the same time, if you're speaking to a very kind of posh elderly couple, so to speak, and you know they're using very, you know, very received pronunciation and they're not swearing, then it's probably not the best idea to start doing that because it might create a disconnect within the conversation. So try and meet people at their level and almost mirror their vocabulary and and mirror their actions. And if someone's a little bit more irate with their their body language, maybe they'll be a little bit more irate with with your body language. Try and meet them where they're at because. When we mirror someone, we're kind of mimicking their behaviors, mirroring their behaviors. And in a sense, there's a psychological signal to the person we're speaking to where that person is like, oh, this person I'm speaking to reminds me of someone, right? Who is it? And then subconsciously, you're probably thinking this person reminds me of me. They're doing similar things to what I'm doing. They're talking in the same way that I'm doing or using the same words that I'm using. And then our ego is kind of like, oh, I like this person because they're reminding me of myself. So I think mirroring someone and meeting them on their level, talking in a similar way that they do, it, you know, it is a great way of, again, bridging that divide within within the, the dialogue and within the conversation. Um, and then a couple last things really is just ask for clarity. People are going to be vague in their conversation. They're going to be vague in what they're saying. If someone says, oh, we don't need eat animals to live, get them to be specific. Can you tell me what nutrients? Oh, I think there is a human way to kill an animal. Okay, can you be specific and can you describe that process to me? When we keep things vague, it's easier because we're not having to think about the nitty-gritty things. Ask someone to specify and have clarity in their responses and in their beliefs. Why do you feel this way? The word why I think is so important. Why do you feel this way? Why is it that you do this? Why is it you think that's acceptable? Why do you think that we do these things? So... Uh, clarity and specific or specificity is that the word i think is really important to a conversation you should always get people to to be those things so that kind of really summarizes i think a lot of what i was going to say be adaptable be versatile listen be nice i try and you know try and end a conversation with a handshake if you can i think that symbolizes something um but really the bottom line for me is this try to empathize and understand where people are coming out understand the psychological barriers that are in place for people educate yourself watch documentaries read books watch youtube videos listen to the opposing point of view educate yourself as much as you possibly can and then practice practice in the mirror practice in the shower practice you know get someone in your family or your friendship group or your roommate whoever it is to give you an excuse and respond to that excuse and get yourself into the flow of practicing and knowing how to respond and then just get out there on the street and do it talk to someone at cube talk to that family member just get involved in it. Do what it is that you can do with the situation you have to generate these dialogues because for me, I think dialogue and communication is so powerful because it's through that dialogue and especially that Socratic dialogue. We can help people further understand themselves and understand their own morals and their own beliefs and the the mechanisms that they have within themselves that cause them to do the things that they do. So education, practice, over time you'll become more confident. Don't worry about it and have fun with it. Encouraging people to become more compassionate towards animals is a fun thing to do because you can generate so much positivity from it and you can feel you're actively involved in the change that you want to see. So do that. Get involved in an activism group in your your area. Get involved in just talking to people. Encouraging people to go vegan can be an arduous and difficult and challenging thing to do. And it's not without its problems and it's not without its sadness. And thinking what happens to animals is inherently upsetting. But generating that change within people and being a part of helping people kind of reach that vegan conclusion is a really positive experience. And if you leave a cube, you probably leave feeling energized because you know that you've done something that's generating some good. So educate yourself, practice, get out there, meet new vegans, meet new activists and have fun with it as well. That's what I try and urge people to do. But I think that's probably enough for this week. Um, it feels like it's been—I've been talking for a while. I don't actually know how long I've been talking for, which is which is quite nice. But I feel like I've probably said a lot of different things and a lot of information. Um, and so I hope you've enjoyed it and found it beneficial. Um, if you have enjoyed this podcast, um, then you can support what I do and my activism in general, but also this podcast through my website, which is www.earthlinged.org. Um, I have a mailing list on there, so you can sign up to the mailing list, and I will, you know, send up uh, emails about things that I'm doing and updates and little things like that um and you can also see what else has been organized and what else i'm involved in as well um you can support my work directly f- even from my patron um but there's a lot more information about that on my website as well but thank you so much for for listening i hope you've enjoyed the second episode it's been a pleasure speaking with you all again um and i'll see you next week for the next episode and the next topic of discussion but until then have a great week thank you again for listening i really appreciate all of your support and it's wonderful to be a part of this community with you all and uh That really rounds it up. Thank you so much. Have a great week and we'll speak soon.